Shishao. This is yet a new episode of Salesforce Web Podcast. Today, I got a returning guest to our show. So, Aiden, Aiden, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Shi. Thanks for having me back on your podcast. <laughs> Definitely. So, Aiden was one of the most popular episodes in this show. So, episode 46. Uh, Nebula Core Apex Functional Programming. That was the title of the, the episode. So for any listeners, if you are interested in what is like a functional programming in general and what is Apex Functional Programming, the library Aiden wrote, maybe you can also, after listening to this episode, then go back to the episode 46 to listen to the, the previous one. And uh, Aiden, would you like to still briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm a technology director at Nebula Consulting. We're a, a Salesforce consulting partner. And um, yeah, for the upcoming conversation, it's probably relevant. My background is that I did a degree in computer science 25 years ago, followed by a PhD, and then a bit of time working for a hardware manufacturer, um, actually developing an IDE for them, working on their IDE. And then eventually fell into Salesforce uh, nine years ago. Mm, excellent. Uh, in Salesforce world, we do want to compute science-oriented people who can really uh, look into the details of programming language and write those beautiful uh, libraries to, to help everybody. Yeah, yeah it's definitely one of my... Um, missions is to convince uh, developers in the Salesforce world to make sure that they're looking at things outside the Salesforce world, whatever their own background is. There's always lots mm. of conversations going on around software engineering, and it's just as relevant to Salesforce as it is anywhere indeed, else. Indeed, indeed. That's also one of the missions on, on this show as well. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, in the previous episode, we talked about uh, your library, which is the functional programming. But uh, in, in this episode, you want to discuss a bit about object-oriented, right? Yeah, so it's kind of um, reflecting on how object-oriented programming was taught when I was at university and then mm. what the sort of general opinions about some of those lessons are now and all of this stuff is into kind of high level uh, conversations where different people can hold different legitimate opinions, but it feels like the weight of opinion has moved. And uh, mm. because I was building that functional library in Apex, which is an object oriented language, then it kind of extensively uses object oriented principles to build that library. So I've gone quite far into those principles mm. by the standards of your average apex developer mm. and uh, you had your un university degree back in 1990s yeah so it was 97 when i did uh, 97 to 2000 was my mm. uh, degree in computer science okay so how was that by the time in 1990s so I would assume C and C++ was the dominant language in the, in the college. Yeah, exactly. C++ was our main language uh, for learning. Um, we would sometimes use C when we're working with 
microcontrollers and robotics stuff and um, we did some programming in Prolog and Haskell um, just really as a bit of an exposure to kind of logic-based functional programming stuff but it was never a main part of it for me. Mm. And uh, in this show in episode 71 I had a chat with uh, Mark Siemens uh, about the solid principle, which was proposed mm -hmm. by by Uncle Bob, so those yeah. five guiding principle in in object oriented languages. Do you think those things are still really solid, or do you <laughs> uh, along the time you see it more like a flexible? Like sometimes you need to uh, adjust uh, according to the real life, you know. I think solid is a bit like every other decision you make as a developer, that the more experience you have, the more you end up saying, well, it depends on the circumstances and the context. So sometimes solid is the right way to go, but sometimes uh, it makes sense to deliberately break those principles because something else is more important. Hmm. So really, there is a context around the problem yeah. you have to choose. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, for developers like me, um, maybe we have a bit of experience already after going out from college. But the thing is, solid, when I read those principles, it looks really like Bibles. Um, they, are re they can really yeah. help me to think uh, even before writing the code to think, okay, maybe something, the code smells, it gave me a clear message. My, my code wasn't uh, designed good. So I really, really like those principles and follow it a lot. So now you're te yeah. telling me, right, more experience I have, I more I should think about it again. Yeah, I think um, one of the things uh, that is worth thinking about is there's uh, kind of there's a model of learning that um, a whole number of different people have kind of identified that as you're learning a particular area, you go through various stages of proficiency and um, there's like there's an early stage where there are rules that you should apply and you just follow those rules because you don't have the experience um, to know how to solve the problem without the rules and that mm. kind of gets you up to the first stage and then mm. as you become more proficient and you've used those rules more you start to understand the principles behind those rules and what they're getting at and then as, again, as you get more experienced again, you start to realize that, okay, these rules don't apply all the time. And maybe there are other rules that um, occur to me about how to blend these different concepts or come up with my own rules. So something like the solid principles, is, it's a really useful way to kind of um, distill down a good approach to writing code, but then um, you will definitely see people breaking those rules, experienced people breaking those rules, and they'll have good reasons for it. Um, so you kind of have to move through those stages and realize that um, solid is not 
the end point is just uh, a really useful thing along the way. Mm. So real life is definitely more complex than just those principle guiding, right? Yeah. So you can't all the time use principles. There are always exceptions. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Could, could you give us some good examples, like what uh, used to be thinking maybe uh, back in the college time, uh, people think it's good, but now along the time thinking it's it's not that good anymore. There are two of the things that really stood out from university programming courses related mm -hmm. to object-oriented programming were that um, object-oriented programming is all about inheritance as a way of sharing uh, code. And also that we broke things into objects so that we could reuse them. And I think both of those ideas, looking back on them now, are things that I would question. Um, like today, I would almost never use inheritance. I would always prefer um, if I needed to share some functionality, I'd prefer to use composition instead of inheritance. And uh, I think one of the reasons it's difficult to wrap your head around what inheritance is and what it's for is that actually there are kind of there are three different concepts going on within inheritance. And sometimes those different concepts can uh, be in conflict with each other. So mm. one of the things people mean when they talk about inheritance is they mean a specialization. So one of the kind of canonical examples is if you've got classes to represent different shapes, then you could say a square is a specialization of rectangle. So like rectangle is a superclass and mm -hmm. a square inherits from that. And that's kind of one of the standard examples. But one of the other th concepts in inheritance is um, that of type substitution. So wherever we have a rectangle, we could also have a square and it would behave in the same way. But that example itself violates the idea of type substitution, because if you had a list of rectangles, some of which happened to be squares, and you tried to set their dimensions to be uh, two by four, mm -hmm. then that would be an invalid operation on a square because the two sides are supposed to be the same. So yeah. they're not behaving the same way as the subtype. And you can tie yourself in knots if you don't realize that there are these different kinds of um, there are these different concepts going on. So you should probably only use inheritance for, for one. either for specialization mm. or to expect that type substitution to work properly. Mm. There's another example, which is maybe simpler to understand here is animal is the base class and the dog is the subclass, right? Yeah. Is that the first option that you just mentioned for the inheritance? Yeah, so, so that is trying to express specialization, express, yeah, specialization. inheritance, but it probably, an example like that kind of makes sense in a textbook, but you need more context about why you decided to do that. I mean, often um, it'll be because there are some sort of shared operations or code sharing that you want. So um depending on what it is you want to share, it might be better to share it by um, composition instead. And when I've 
I've been down the road in the past of trying to use inheritance as a way of code sharing between various classes. And often you end up with something like uh, the superclass having a whole load of uh, abstract virtual methods, which mm -hmm. then the subclasses have to implement. And then they kind of plug into the functionality supplied by your abstract class. Mm -hmm. Well, what tends to happen there is that you find that you need to add more and more and more of these abstract kind of method hooks because the subclasses need to change the top level behavior in more different ways. And that leads you into problems it, itself because you have um, this ever expanding list of hooks. And whenever you add one of those hooks, you might find yourself having to modify all the other subclasses to um, make things work mm -hmm. whereas when you plug things together with composition then there's usually an interface to define how the two classes talk to each other and it's much more clear the communication methods mm. just to let our listeners to know in case they don't understand what's the difference between the inheritance and the composition i think inheritance is is a something and the composition is like has a, right? As a, yes. a, a simple example, the composition is like a car has an engine. So car yeah. is is composed of engine, tire, and all other components, right? So you yeah. use those components to, 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 to combine and then become a car. That's how I understand. Yeah, and if you want to put it into something like uh, more kind of Salesforce terms, suppose you're writing um, a class to access a REST API, and mm -hmm. that API came in two different versions, uh, but the login method was the same. There are two different ways you could organize writing that code. You could have an abstract API class that just handles the login part and then subclasses of that for the two different versions of the API. Mm -hmm. Or you could have a single class that does login, which each of the API version classes have an instance of the login class and just uh, delegate to that each time they need to do a login. And I would argue that having a separate login class that stands alone is easier to understand because you can just look at the interface of that thing and you know how to interact with it. Whereas the subclass superclass scenario um, ends up with all these hooks plugging into it and it also ends up with uh, any of your protected or public data members in the superclass are available in the subclass. But to somebody reading the subclass code, it's not always obvious where these variables have come from. They have to start looking up the inheritance hierarchy and find out where all this stuff's come from. Mm. And also, I remember back in the days when I studied some trigger frameworks, there are different layer of inheritance as well. And I really need to jump between the different layers to understand what the trigger really does. Yeah. I think that's also one of the problems, uh, similar problems you yeah. just mentioned for inheritance. Yeah, exactly. I think you get more encapsulation if you use composition than if you use inheritance. So I think, you know, the, the conclusion that I've come to is 
almost any time I start to build inheritance and just take a step back and say, could I do this with composition? Would it be better to do this with composition? Um, mm. and nine times out of 10, I end up using composition instead. Mm. For developers who are used to inheritance, how do they start to think on compositions? How do they start to model the business problem into composition way? At least for me, I don't know how to learn that. So I think you can, it's about coming up with appropriate abstractions and um, being able to slice out pieces of functionality. Uh, I think one of the things that comes from the Uncle Bob uh, school of thought with clean code is that within each method, we want uh, the code within a method to be working at a single level of abstraction. So you don't want it to be doing string manipulation at one point and then immediately doing database operations at the next, because those are very different levels. Um, mm -hmm. So that suggests to you that, okay, we can wrap that string manipulation thing up into possibly another method, but probably another object that sort of encapsulates the concept of that low level thing that you're trying to do. And if you start to wrap things up and think about them in terms of what level of abstraction you're in, then some of these, uh, the right classes to use, the right way to comp pose everything uh, just sort of falls out as you do that. And, you know, your code moves through a whole series of stages while you're writing it that way. You probably, you may well write it as one long method in the first place, because at that point you don't know what you're going to need, what abstractions would make sense. And then you might split it out into methods. And then you might see that some of those methods share the same data and share the same kind of uh, they'll work in the same conceptual area and say okay well actually that is an object that can stand by itself i guess it's something that takes experience but one of the mm. key other takeaways is that nobody sits down and writes a perfectly composed system in the first iteration they move towards it and they learn more about the problem while they're solving it mm. Indeed. I think one of the things um, a lot of new developers hesitate to do is to refact the code. Um, mm. So along the time when they write more similar functionalities, then there are really chances that you know, you need to refact your code to really think to put the, some similar code into one method or just move around and break things into different objects to make the code looks clearer than before, mm. easier to read. I think that's the main purpose when we do refactories. I think it's been really transformative in Salesforce in the time that I've been working in Salesforce, the move to having a proper IDE, so Illuminator Cloud and VS Code, mm -hmm. make it much easier to do those refactoring steps than mm. the bad old days when we had Dev Console, or even before that, when we were just typing text into a text box in the setup pages. You know, mm. I just wouldn't attempt to rename something if I had to open 10 different tabs to change all the references to it. 
But if I've got an IDE, then I can simply start to move these things around and it gives you that freedom. If you've got a decent IDE and you've written decent tests, then it adds so much to your ability to apply these concepts because you can refactor safely. Yeah. The things that can be done by tools then should be done by tools. For us, we are only thinking, right? And then we tell the tools to do the manual work. Yes, I mean, I love what you said just there for, for two reasons. One is that coding is thinking. Uh, mm. My my young son sometimes plays it um, doing coding work in his room because he knows it's what I do. Mm. And to set up his desk for his coding work, what he got himself was a whiteboard, a book, and something to fiddle with. He didn't even get himself a computer because he, mm. he thinks... But that's what coding is, like typing is just the last Indeed. bit. Indeed. <laughs> and he's Indeed. totally right. <laughs> in addition to the inheritance discussion we just had, uh, I think there's also an interesting point that you mentioned to me. The, the reuse is not the reason to break things into objects. Could you also open this up? Yeah, so whenever we're reusing code in multiple places um that is a good thing but it also comes with a cost that um you're introducing dependencies between things that may not have previously existed when you were repeating yourself so to give an example if you've got um a salesforce implementation that's using both sales cloud and service cloud and you've got some business logic that's kind of similar in the sales cloud and the service cloud sides of things Mm. and it might be really tempting to think okay well I can reuse that by pushing it into a single class and then I can have some sort of parameterization to say am I doing the sales cloud version or the service cloud version Mm. and you think great I've got fewer lines of code that's a good thing but you have to realize that that's come at the cost of tying together those two different things. And um, so that means if you get some change requests on the sales side, there's a risk suddenly that you might accidentally break the service implementation because you've tied them together with this dependency. And really, uh, you need to make sure that you consider all the consequences before you make a decision like reusing code and it kind of falls down that reuse makes a lot of sense for very abstract computer science concepts you mm-hmm. know if you have we all reuse the standard apex list class if you have some fancy way of doing sorting that makes sense because it stands alone but as soon as you start to try and reuse a more business or domain level concept then you're probably introducing dependencies that you shouldn't introduce and Mm. even at a lower level you know when i'm breaking an implementation up into separate classes that i'm going to put together with composition i'm sort of treating it like i might want to reuse them because that makes sure that i have um, kind of clean interfaces between those components but Reuse isn't the reason I'm breaking them up. Clarity is the reason I'm breaking them up so that somebody reading the code can kind of mentally box off the different concepts and say, okay, I know this is the bit that's dealing with handling JSON. I know this is the bit that's handling the REST service. 
Mm. And they all plug together like this. And I don't have to look inside that JSON box to figure out what it's doing. I can just make some reasonable assumptions and then look in it if I really need to know the details. Mm. You know, this reminded me one of the examples in, in Uncle Bob's clean code book. It, it was a function that has a Boolean parameter. So if a Boolean is true, then the function does uh, the logic in, in way A. And if the Boolean is mm -hmm. false, then doing it in another way, way B. So instead of putting uh, the two different logic into one method, by adding this boolean, why not to break them up into two separate methods and then give them totally different namings, even though there yeah. there is a little bit of um, you know repeated code, but it's really more yeah. uh, clear for others to read or even for yourself to read. And you also, you also mentioned at the different level of the business problem, the lower the reusability is better but the higher the more abstracted then you more give yourself a warning should i bring things together or break them up yeah definitely and and the point that you made about that kind of boolean flag i would always think that methods that take kind of flags as their parameters are a code smell that you need to be wary of and you know, that example is exactly right, that mm. when you're calling that method, you know which version it is that you mm. want to call. You know what operation it is at the point of calling. So it doesn't need to be a dynamic thing. So not only is it clearer to separate out those two concepts, it's actually um, faster at runtime because uh, there's no checking of this flag. It's just... I know mm. now what I'm doing and I'm going to call the right thing. And you see people doing that. Um, often people checking flags like that inside a loop can actually slow things down if you're suddenly looping over a lot of records or something. Okay. Good point. Good point. In addition to this, I think um, one of the challenging thing to write OO code uh, back in the episode I talked with Mark Seaman as well is um, OO is difficult to model because there are different ways to break the problems and then use different ways of model OOs or of creating objects to fulfill the business requirements. And I used to call it like 50% is art, 50% is technical uh, skill, mm -hmm. technical implementation. And that's why Mark uh, likes more using functional programming because it's more about <laughs> uh, uh, mathematics. Um, but mm -hmm. here, what's what's your opinion? How do we really construct the the object in the object-oriented language, such as Apex? I think there are a lot of parallels between programming and writing, uh, as in writing as a journalist or as a um, novelist or whatever else, where it the key thing is simplicity and readability. And when it comes to breaking your coding problem into objects, you want to break it down so that um, 
it's as simple as possible, but no simpler. And it talks in the same domain as the business problem you're trying to solve when you're at that level of abstraction. So some of that kind of top level code, you could almost show to the customer and say, um, that here is how we make the decision about how an invoice is going to get processed. And they could probably read that, you know, if they see if it's this kind of invoice, then do this high level process. If it's that kind of invoice, do the other high level process. So it makes it much easier for you to understand. It makes it easier for uh, you to convey to the customer what it is that you've built. And it makes it easier for the next developer coming in to start to see the connections between the low level implementation and the actual customer requirement that they made. Mm. Have you ever seen such a good uh, solution after years of implementation? Even? <laughs> <laughs> we, um, I, we do build things that way. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, certainly all of this stuff, like I say, it always depends. You don't want to go in and massively over-engineer every single solution, but um, there's always that point where um, you've done one small thing in a business process and then another and another, and your customizations kind of add up to the point where you have to take a step back and say, okay, what's the bigger picture? What are the abstractions here that are actually going on so that I can rewrite this solution into something that's going to be more manageable. And when it justifies it, when you get to that point, then that's when we would start breaking things out into objects that kind of express those high level um, concepts. So in sort of concrete Salesforce terms, you'll see um, in some of our solutions, some classes which literally just encapsulate um, various different flavors and states of opportunities. So, mm. you know, to be valid for a renewal in a particular customer org, there may be half a dozen different things that have to be true or within various ranges on an opportunity record. And if our customers ask us to do a lot of work around that opportunity, then we will encapsulate that into an object. And so you start to read code that says, if it is a new business renewal and mm. there will be a class for is new business renewal. And so you get that kind of flavor of it looks like the domain that the customer talks in. Mm. Is there something else you still want to share with our listeners? I think um, probably the main kind of takeaway that you might get from this is that everything always depends. <laughs> and people who proclaim rules as being kind of cast iron rules are either doing it because they know that's the easiest way to help people who haven't peeked behind the rules yet, mm. or um, maybe people who themselves haven't got to the stage where they realize that the rules don't absolutely always apply. Mm. And I think it's always, as a developer, to move yourself forward, you've always got to keep questioning 
what you believe about how to do things and keep looking for people who disagree with your current way of doing things and keep kind of challenging yourself because sometimes you'll read somebody you disagree with and you think well Mm. I could see their point of view but I actually I still stick by what I had thought and that's still a useful exercise in terms of you um, really understanding what it is that you think or it may be that they change your opinion and the kind of the general opinion in software engineering has changed over time so it's natural that we as individuals should be changing and trying to learn with that all the time this sounds not only just a writing code suggestions it's like how we live our life as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i think you you see that inclination across people who really get into uh, development work you know they they always want to keep learning right and yeah. they do that in other aspects of their life too yeah indeed any good study resources on the things you just uh, learned there was a um, very funny blog post by Dan North uh, about why every single one of the solid principles is wrong <laughs> which falls into that category of that's, that's interesting. I don't agree with him, but it's very mm. thought provoking blog post. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, share me the link I'll put in our show notes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, there are a few there are a few other um, bits and pieces. There is a there is another podcast. I hate to recommend that people finish listening to Salesforce Way before they listen to this other one. But um, there's a podcast called Two's Compliment Podcast, and mm. they had an episode discussing these aspects of um, solid principles and how much they apply in the real world. Um, okay. That's that's very good as well. All right. So, Aidan, just give me the link. I'm putting our show notes for our listeners to pick up. And uh, perfect. Thanks for coming to the show. Thank you, Shay. Yeah, see you later. Later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.